Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 3rd, 2010, and my guest is Alain de Botton, the author of many books, including the one we will discuss today, The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. Alain, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you so much. I want to say first off, this is really a beautiful book. It's written with elegance, humor. It's full of insights into daily life, the nature of work and modernity. What you did is visit an, a wide array of people in their work lives, follow them around, see what they do, and describe not just what you saw, but how watching those other people made you feel. It's an utterly delightful book. And I want to start off by uh, reading a very short excerpt. Uh, it's found on page uh, 35 of the paperback, where you, uh, without perhaps intending to channel two great economists, uh, Adam Smith and, and F.A. Hayek, and you write as follows. You're, you're going to be writing about logistics, and you say the following – Two centuries ago, our forebears would have known the precise history and origin of nearly every one of the limited number of things they ate and owned, as well as of the people and tools involved in their production. They were acquainted with the pig, the carpenter, the weaver, the loom, and the dairymaid. The range of items available for purchase may have grown exponentially since then, but our understanding of their genesis has diminished almost to the point of obscurity. We are now as imaginatively disconnected from the manufacture and distribution of our goods as we are practically in reach of them, a process of alienation which has stripped us of myriad opportunities for wonder, gratitude, and guilt. And one of the themes of this early part of the book is, is the role of specialization and how because of specialization, uh, we are less able sometimes to see what our work produces. We don't quite necessarily see – often do not see how our work fits into the whole. Um, talk about the wonder and guilt and, and alienation, the, the lost opportunities for wonder and guilt uh, that you feel that that uh, produces. Yes, I mean, um, it, it is a central point in the book that um, we are incredibly fortunate to have before us an enormous array of consumer goods uh, and uh, products generally. Um, but if there's a problem with this, it is, of course, the fact that we live in a world where we just don't know where stuff comes from, who made it, and in what circumstances it was made. Um, part of this just leads to a loss of excitement and interest. Um, it's, it's very interesting to look at people working and to think about people working. You know, work is at the center of most people's lives. Um, so when you're trying to get to know people or understand people, understanding what they do is absolutely central. Um, but it, the way in which work happens nowadays tends to mean that we know a few areas of life very, very well, the area that we're in, and then there's kind of mystery. Um, you know, it, it, it's the old joke about taking a, a, a kid to a supermarket and they'll say, oh, you know, don't carrots you know, just grow here? And they're, they're incredibly surprised that actually the carrots have come from a place called a farm which they may never have visited. So we're, we're, we're kind of cut off from the whole chains of, of production. 
at a very time when, of course, these um, chains are, are, are incredibly uh, well-attuned to our own needs. So you can click on a button and something will show up on your door the very next day. Um, and all that is amazing. But, um, but that amazement is also dearly won. So, you know, you mentioned Hayek and Adam Smith. You know, it, it's the old payoff between um, a society of uh, craftsmanship, local craftsmanship, which doesn't produce great surpluses um, and is, uh, you know, very narrow in its opportunities in many ways, um, versus an open market, um, which is a good place to be a consumer in, but also dizzying and confusing to be a producer in. What I like about the book is that you make both observations. Uh, You're not... Uh, grinding an axe against modernity, you're simply – or civilization. You're pointing out that it comes sometimes with a set of other effects we might not always be so enthusiastic about. Uh, mm. l- let's talk about that though. Do, do you really think – do you think it's important? Do you think people feel alienated? Do, they, do you think they? it's important that we see precisely where our carrots come from? Is it? Is it saddening that we don't know who grew our carrots? Is it? Is it – well, I think it's a missed opportunity. Um, you know, one of the reasons why vacations tend to be so difficult for people um, is that they don't, they're not at work. They're not doing anything. Um, and we have this strict division between leisure um, and, and work. And during our leisure time, we're not really supposed to be thinking about work uh, as such. And this is just reflected in literature. You know, there are very, very few books that discuss work. Obviously, there are lots of business books about how to be a better manager and so on. But in terms of books that, that really aim to kind of shine a, a spotlight on what's going on in the working world, um, we don't have too much of that. And, and business journalism tends to avoid those sort of stories. It, it tends to report on management changes and um, you know, the movements of the share price, etc. But um, you know, you, you, I'm always amazed by uh, business journalism that, that reports on fascinating areas of uh, uh, you know, the way people are working, and, and it just sidesteps the interest just to report on, on the share price. Now, of course, people have a job to do, and uh, this is linked to people trying to make money with shares, etc. But it's an example of how, I mean, you say, you know, are we missing out on something? I think we are missing out on something. Are we daily unhappy? Maybe not. We're not unhappy about not knowing where the carrot comes from, but it's a missed opportunity for something that's very interesting. Um, we're willing to grant that we could get interested in how people used to work 100 years ago. So, you know, if you're traveling through the Midwest or uh, sorry, through the Southwest, you might, you might end up in a mining museum uh, or in a, a, a museum to you know, cattle ranching or something like that. But they tend to be um, visits to, to dead industries or uh, slightly quaint, offbeat industries. But you know, if you said, um, I'd like to visit a shoe factory or I'd like to visit a... Uh, um, a bank or whatever, you can't. You, you cannot visit um, places where most people work. Um, and the feeling is partly that these places are boring, which is not true, um, and partly that if you let anybody in, they're going to cause havoc, which is probably not true either. So uh, generally, I think we, we hide our productive selves from our culture, um, and I think that is a missed opportunity. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, and by the way, I'll put in a plug for one of your other books, which is The Art of Travel, which um, is a set of philosophical observations about these kind of issues with respect to travel and has a profoundly deep insight that you can get away from your 
work, you can get away from your home, but you can't get away from yourself when you travel. And it's one of the. Right, exactly. It sounds like a joke, but it's actually quite an interesting, and and you have a lot of of useful and thoughtful things to say about it. But I think you're absolutely right. I, having had the f- good fortune to tour a number of uh, production facilities, I've seen a. Ford Auto Plan in Kansas City, Missouri, which is an extraordinary human achievement. Um, I've seen pencils being made in uh, rural Missouri uh, in Versailles, it's called, um, not Versailles, but uh, Versailles, Missouri, where the uh, every Dixon Ticonderoga pencil, at least when I was there, was made that are, that are you know about a billion a year. It's an extraordinary thing, and. One of the themes of the book is that there is some aesthetic value to those activities. Um, But of course, the people who work in those factories are very, very far away from craftsmanship. They're typically watching and monitoring machines to make sure they don't break down. There are very few people who physically work in those plants. Uh, You you toured a biscuit factory and looked at the people – what we would call crackers in the United States, I think. Um, and uh, the actual production process is – there's not a lot of room for people in it. Uh, the people who've made the machinery, which is a quite extraordinary, are really the unseen contributors to the process, but they're not on the site. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, but all of it is interesting, uh, and I think the people who work there are pretty interested. Um, what I found touring plants and factories and uh, offices, etc., people are once you know once you get them on their own when you know, no boss is watching or whatever, people are genuinely very interested to tell you about their work. If you take an interest in it, they will reflect that interest back and 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 go with it. And um, you know even if it's a so-called not very interesting job, um, on the whole, people are proud to do what they're doing. Um, and, and, and we'll tell you a lot about it. And every job uh, demands a lot of care. You know, nothing gets done in this world. No, no pencil gets made without an unbelievable amount of effort. Um, and to realize this is just part, I think, of, uh, kind of being human and knowing how the world works. And as I say, we do all know this because you know, almost everybody works at something. Um, but I think there's a great virtue in learning about other people's work. It, it's just like any kind of exercise in empathy or stepping out of your own shoes, uh, it just broadens your horizons. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time when we drive through a landscape, we don't know how that landscape operates. Um, you know, we see trees, we see, we see the, the, the sky, we see clouds, but we don't know what that gray shed is over in the corner. Um, we don't know where that truck is going. Um, we don't know where those power lines are headed or, or, or where they're coming from. And this leads to a sort of slightly deadened feeling where we just kind of say switch off. Um, And that's a pity because on the whole, what's in the back of that truck is likely to be really interesting. And what's going on in the, you know, gray warehouse in the corner is also going to be full of um, things of uh, of kind of general human value. Um, But we lack the tools to, to, to undo this. You mentioned kindly my this previous book I wrote on the art of travel. The interesting thing about travel guidebooks is, um, you know, if you pick up the average guidebook to a place like Italy, um, and I've done, I've done this recently, they're extraordinary. You, you'd be driving through a landscape, and the only thing that the guidebook wants to tell you about is uh, Renaissance churches. You know, a mainstream kind of Fodor's guide, it'll just say, you know, there's this 15th century church. You know, and meanwhile, there's all sorts of other stuff 
pylons, factories, trucks, etc., etc. Um, and there's no mention. These things are invisible um, because the idea is that's boring. Well, of course, it's not. It's as much part of uh, existence and hence of travel uh, as anything else. So we have this odd way in which though um, we're incredibly mercantile, commercial, technological society, uh, when it comes to the human imagination, we're really focused on culture. Um, we, we, we sort of think of ourselves as, as really only being interested in you know, where a movie was shot, where a painting was made, um, that sort of stuff. And, and of course, it just isn't true. There's, there's so much else. And at one point in the book, you have a lovely um, parallel between an Edward Hopper painting and a woman at work writing a, maybe some kind of marketing paper study. Uh, Hopper really tried to give – to force the eye to to notice uh, a lot of that, the industrial life, the the unseen quiet moments of, of daily existence that, that are not grand, that aren't cathedrals, that aren't great landmarks. And, um, uh, you know, he had lots of pictures of paintings of corners of things and just views that, that we don't traditionally associate with um, with great art. And I think part of his – idea was to help us see that some of those things are worth looking at. That's right. I mean, um, you know, art has this huge role to play um, in, in getting us to focus on stuff. And, you know, Hopper is, is a classic example. There's so many, you know, you, you can't be an American today um, and be in many situations without that word Hopper-esque mm-hmm. coming to mind, you know, because be it the late-night motel or, you know, the bar or the diner or whatever, will be in the footsteps of this great painter. Um, and, and generally, that's what, that's what art is doing. Art is putting post-it notes on various parts of the world, basically going, notice this. Um, that's what a great artist is doing, you know, to put it crudely, just getting us to notice. And your book is, um, a, your book is a guidebook through some of the is – a, is a tourist guide to some of the aspects of modern work. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. I want to. Um, I want to just put an exclamation point to your uh, observation that people like to talk about their work. Uh, I was doing some research once on um, innovation and and bottling. When you when you bottle or put things in cans, uh, you, you need to make sure that they get filled all the way to the top. So the standard thing you'd think they would do is weigh them, but that slows the process down. Instead, what they do typically in a modern bottling plant is they shoot gamma rays through the cans as they're spun off the line, having been filled at very high speeds. And the gamma rays go through liquid at a different rate than they go through air. There's a sensor on the other side, et cetera, et cetera. And I had the good fortune to talk to the guy who makes those gamma ray sensors. Now, that's a pretty dry activity. It's not really cocktail party conversation, right? But boy, was he... Well, no, but I mean, I love it. This is completely... Well, well you, you and I see you, eye to eye yeah. on this, but, and, and I'm sure many other people will too. I mean, this is great stuff. And he was and so excited. The thing is... He was so excited that somebody cared about his, what he was doing. Right, but you see, I wonder about this because my feeling is that everybody is interested in this, um, but there's a feeling that it's boring. So I imagine the conversation went like this. He would have said, look, I'm sure you really don't want to know, and you would have gone, no, 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 tell me, et cetera, et cetera. And... There's, just a, there's a lot of things that are not quite respectable to be interested in. Um, so, you know, if the guy said, well, I'm a restorer of 15th century, you know, <laughs> Renaissance pictures, everybody would oh, how, how very interesting, etc. Um, perhaps exaggerating how interested they were when they weren't that interested. Um, and similarly, 
Um, sometimes there are things that we are really interested in, but we're not allowed to be. There's a sort of feeling that's a bit nerdy, that's a bit of a geeky thing to be interested yeah, in. Um, that word geekishness covers such a huge area, but that's a lot of who we are, and, and that's a lot of our glory. You know, a lot of what we think of as, um, as amazing comes down to a certain level of obsessiveness. That's really what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody who made a machine um, that took an interest and just drove it to the nth degree. Um, and there's something kind of sublime and, and very human, characteristically human. This is what our species does. We, you know, we really drive things to their extremes, and we think about things to their extremes. And, uh, and there's beauty in that. Yeah, uh, I like that idea. It's an idea of an obsessive focus. You know, one of the issues, and you, you, you touch on this at times in the book, I want to come back to this idea of specialization. We think of specialization, I think, and we've talked about this many times on the program with, with other guests, but oftentimes we think of a Charlie Chaplin character in modern times turning a wrench over and over and over again. And, and that's one of the most utterly boring jobs, at least it would be for Charlie Chaplin, uh, Perhaps the person who actually does it doesn't find it as boring as, you know, the, the intellectual who decries it. But, but the, the other aspect of specialization is this, which, and that's that's the alienation side, the the boring repetitiveness of specialization. But the other side is this obsessive focus and the one the personalities that that attracts who who, who like that. Um, you know, you give the example in passing of uh, a renal surgeon. And you know everyone's a kidney to that person. That's all they you know. That's all they want to talk about. They see you as a basically a kidney surrounded by lots of other stuff. But to but to have a specialty like that, uh, even within a you give the example of accounting, to be really superbly good at something very small, but but still contributing to the whole. There is a part of that that's alienating, but there's also a part that's kind of grand about it. Absolutely, and you know that's the argument that the whole world is is found in a grain of sand. That Zen Buddhist idea um, that that in a sense, by specialising, you're not necessarily narrowing, because a, a particular field will contain within its boundaries most dynamics you know of life. Um, so you know it, it's that old argument about you know the macro and the micro, and uh, it's certainly worth entertaining the thought that. Um, by getting to know a, a narrow field very well, you will be encountering um, many of the same dynamics. And in fact, you know, I, I think that's very true. When you know, if you put, I don't know, a Shakespeare scholar together with an inventor of infrared machines, so two obsessives together, um, right. and you get them to talk and you get them to share what they're up to, how they feel about what they're doing, and what they're doing day to day. Um, I predict that there will be many, many similarities, um, and you can you could draw that example across many fields. Um, once you're once you're dealing with obsessive perfectionists, um, it's kind of the same thing the world over, even if the product turns out to be in a different area. Yeah, they might not be the best uh, the best of friends, but you're <laughs> right; they have a certain um, uh, sisters under the skin. Yeah. I mean, look, you know. One of my ambitions in the book, I mean, you know, don't forget my, my own professional background. I'm coming from an arts background. Um, and when you come from an arts and literature background, one of the first things that seeps into your soul through the education system, etc., is uh, technology and business and science are boring. That's for the, that's for the guys 
you know, across the corridor. That's not you. Um, and I've never accepted that. And it's always kind of irked me. And in a, in a sense, some of the book is a response to that. It's, it's basically saying um, there's a way for, you know, the artists and the technologists to, to see eye to eye. We don't have to, you know, it's not a case that in one corner we have the artists who care obsessively about relationships and dating and uh, that sort of thing. And on the other hand, we have the technologists who care about infrared beams through you know, carbon dioxide or whatever. Um, but the, the, you know, the connections can be made. Um, so that that was a key ambition for me. And, and one of the related theme we've touched on it already a little bit, but I'd like you to expand on it is the aesthetics of of man made versus um, natural things. Um, you follow a satellite launch. You troop through the hillsides with a fan of electric uh, transmission power line pylons. Um, I think you were testing yourself perhaps there to just see how far you could take this idea. There's a certain um, – there's a lot of irony in that last – in that electricity transmission chapter. I can't quite tell whether you're willing to take seriously the idea that these um, physical forms have natural beauty to them. So why, yeah. why don't you talk about that a little bit, those two sort well, of extremes? I, I mean generally, of course, we, we – um, you know, the more developed uh, society becomes technologically, the more attached it becomes to everything natural. I mean, this is a phenomenon we, we see again and again. So, you know, Britain, the world's first industrial nation, was also the first to institute uh, an idea of protected parks, to develop a passion for unspoiled nature, uh, to develop a tourist industry geared towards putting people in wild places. That exactly the same thing happens in the United States. Um, and strong, and, and strong always, art movements that celebrate that, right? Right. Yeah, and and it's always the same and... process that, that you know, the early pioneers who live on the land, um, they may appreciate the beauty, but they don't make too much of a deal about it. Um, pastoral poetry, that the poetry, you know, making lyrical, uh, our experience of nature, only starts taking place when people uh, live in cities. Um, so <laughs> a great you know, there's a complete debt to industrialization in our appreciation of, of, of kind of nature. Uh, and this is, as I say, it's been the pattern for you know, 200 years across, across the world. Um, I think, you know, there's a limit to how far we should, we should push that. Uh, of course, unspoiled nature is exciting and interesting, etc. But we're so in danger of going in that direction that we miss that there is also incidental beauty in, you know, bridges and uh, power lines and fiber optic cables and um, all sorts of other things that, man-made things that are, that are across the landscape as well. Hence my decision to write uh, about power lines, um, which can indeed be absolutely stunning. Um, I was intrigued by the, the discovery that uh, windmills used to be, in 17th century Holland, the target of extraordinary attacks uh, by people who saw them as ugly and uh, uh, pointless and uh, eruptions on the landscape. Yeah. Um, and um, Nowadays, of course, they're seen as extremely beautiful. And I just float that idea that um, many of the uh, industrial things um, in the world we consider ugly, not because they are ugly, but because no one's come along to point out that they might be beautiful. So we're back to that point we were discussing with Hopper. Um, but some of the time, you know, we tend to think that things like beauty and ugliness are just things we feel automatically. 
you know, we, we know that uh, you know, a bit of forest is beautiful, and we know that a bit of, uh, uh, you know, a, a landscape of diners and uh, advertising hoardings is ugly. Um, it, it's not so simple. Um, a lot of the times we call things beautiful or ugly because artists have been there and shaped our sensibilities. So, you know, when we look at, I don't know, the Las Vegas mall strip mall or, 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 or an illuminated urban scene, nowadays we tend to appreciate its beauty because we've seen it in a million very artfully created films. Um, so we're drawn, we're able to see the beauty there. Um, but no one's done that for many things in the modern world. And so in a small way, that's what my book's about. It's trying to um, find the beauty where I think genuinely there is beauty, but it gets missed. I had a philosophy teacher, Dick Smythe, uh, who talked about northern New Jersey when you're coming into New York City and the New Jersey Turnpike, where to many people it's one of the ugliest places in the world. You've got all these electricity transmission places. You've got factories. You've got smoke belching into the air, and yet there's really an ex- – it's an extraordinary landscape of human achievement, uh, an extraordinary testament to imagination. And it's hard to remember that when you're looking at it sometimes. And as you say, it's hard to – sometimes you don't you – don't, um, yeah. you don't believe so, it. You know, so often we need a key into a landscape. Now, that, that could be you know, a song by Bruce Springsteen, or it could be a painting, or it could be a film. It could be a work of literature, but it's a, it, it's a key that basically says – it's okay to like this. Uh, it's, or, or, you know, look in that corner, look at it this way, uh, and, and then the whole thing opens up to us. Were there things that you wanted to write about in the book like that that you didn't have room for or time for? Are there other examples of, of the man-made that you wanted to write about? Um, yes, I mean, so many. Um, I, I guess there are many, many processes that I would still want to study and that I'm still very interested in. Um, so I look at a lot of industrial processes. I, I would like to get more acquainted with bureaucratic processes. I would love, for example, to um, you know understand how the machinery of government works. Um, I would love to study. Like, you know, in a way, I'm a kind of frustrated ethnographer. Maybe being a writer is to be a kind of ethnographer. Um, but but yeah, there are many parts of the modern world that remain deeply interesting, and uh, and I'm always itching to get into people's. Uh, workspaces and, 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 and look around. Shortly after uh, doing this book, partly on the back of this book, I was invited by Heathrow Airport um, to uh, spend a month as their writer in residence at the airport, studying how an airport works. Um, and I wrote a, a little book, which in fact comes out in the United States in about ten days. Um, What's it called? And you know that. What's that it is, called? Uh, the book is called A Week at the Airport. Uh-huh. Um, and it's a record of my, my stay and, and what I saw. It's, it's very much along the lines of this book, of, of, of the book we're talking about, The Pleasure and Sorrows of Work. It's, you know, it's again a study of an industrial uh, uh, location. Um, and, and as I say, this is, um, you know, this is what I love to do. Um, if I could do it all the time, I would, I would. And it sounds like it's the kind of stuff that you do a lot as well. But, but as I say, it, it's, I've got that kind of imagination. I I love nothing better than to uh, than to arrive in a uh, in in a in a area of the economy that I don't understand and try and get to terms with how it works. Well, I think a man who wants to illuminate the uh, inner workings of bureaucracy is a very ambitious man. Uh, I, I want to come back to that, but for, I have to ask you first: uh, How many writers and residents at Heathrow preceded you? 
Well, none at all. None. Okay, just <laughs> so curious. So you, said, would, you make it yeah, sound it was no, like... No, it's, a, it's a completely... I mean, all credit to them. Um, it was a wheeze dreamt up by their advertising agency. Uh-huh. Um, but actually, it became a genuine thing, an absolutely fascinating project. I mean, it's one of the, one of the most fascinating things I've ever done um, because they gave me access all areas to, you know, probably the world's largest international airport. And, um, and I've always loved airports and everything to do with flying because it seems a complete concentration of all the things we've been talking about, technology, economics, etc. It, it, it all comes together at the airport kind of thing. So, um, so it, was a, it was a terrific thing. And yes, I, I wear that, that title, Heathrow Writer in Residence, with, uh, with pride. Yeah, it is, it, it's an interesting place because, uh, I'm sure you're right about this, the, the underlying, the hidden emotion, it's very easy to see it as a place where just large physical structures are moving in and out. They're very complex, require a lot of attention, of course, and, and care. But you have that unbelievable emotional overlay of, of arriving and departing. That's right, absolutely. And, and that's what I, I looked at a lot. And, um, it, you know, at some level, it's all about practicing dying um, because, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's leaving everybody behind and then you get this kind of moment of reprieve. You can find them again. Yeah. But, um, and that's why hanging around arrivals and departures, there's no need to go to the movies anymore. I mean, it, it, it's far more exciting to spy on departing and arriving passengers. You know, all of human life is there. You know, there's that lovely moment in the movie Love, actually, where uh, they yes, just show yes, all exactly. the, the greetings, and it's a, a movie I, I really uh, am very fond of. Uh, did you see the Tom Hanks movie where he spends some, I forget? You no, know, I never did. I never did. I was always going to get around to it, and I never did. Uh, Probably for the best. I, I, should. I don't know. Yeah. It's okay movie, it's, but it, it has some flavor of, you know, it gives us a little bit of a window into the complexity of the airport that we often, we don't uh, notice. Yeah. Um, how about your work? Uh, you don't really, like me, make anything. Um, that's not true, literally, but it seems to be true. We don't manufacture stuff. Mm. Can't hold, you can hold, I can hold your book in my hand, but it doesn't really capture really what you're exactly about. Do you find your work, um, gratifying, fulfilling, meaningful? Do you struggle with that? Um, on a good day, but but to be honest, my imagination always outstrips my reality. Um, I can't help but imagine uh, you know different things, and, and I think that's part of life. I think we we all need to do that. And um, um, what what really interests me as a writer is impact. Um, and I, I worry sometimes that writing a book is is a very negligible way of um, having an impact. And um, and it's something I do wrestle with personally. Um, I have a great admiration for people who make stuff happen. Uh, and on a bad day, it can look like literature doesn't make anything happen. Um, and just passing the time. That's it. That's right. all you do is just tell people pass the time. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, you can look at that again through another kind of optics and, and say, well, passing the time is, is very important too. So, um yeah, I think it's something I wrestle with. I think it, it comes back to, to my own background. Um, I come from uh, a line of practical people who sort of did stuff. Um, everybody sort of in my family has tended to do stuff. Um, and I've adopted this rather weird path of sitting alone in a room, sort of putting words on paper. And, um, uh, yeah, and I, I guess I, unlike some writers, I, I can't help but be interested in, in other ways of life that... Um, 
that I sometimes look nostalgically towards. You're a wastrel. I mean, there's no way around that, really. But <laughs> exactly. But thank but, you. But being a little more optimistic about it um, and cheerful, it it seems to me that um, you know passing the time is probably one of the greatest human enterprises that there is, and having people pass time in reflective ways rather than I don't know playing a video game or watching um, mm. something mindless seems um, just kind of a lovely way to contribute. I'm I'm on your side. Um, Thank you. No, but I, but I mean, I think I think if I had to defend what writers do, and you know, again, we sort of touched on this earlier on. Um, what artists do is is put labels on things. They give us a vocabulary uh, with which to discuss things and understand ourselves. Um, they give us words. They give us uh, images that that we can use so as to make ourselves less mysterious to ourselves and to other people. So it increases kind of communication. And it increases enjoyment because you see more. Um, I remember a lovely quote always from uh, Marcel Proust, who I wrote a book on a while back, in which he said that all um, a great writer does is to give his or her reader a pair of glasses through which they can see new things. And that seems absolutely it. You, you know, that's what writers do, give, give people glasses. Yeah, I think that's, <clears throat> that's what economists try to do too if they do it well. Uh, so I, I, I love that image. Uh, the name of that other book, by the way, which I have not read, is How Proust Can Change Your Life, which is a really frightening title. Um, I did. It, it, there's a little bit of uh, humor in there, yeah, but, I suppose. but also an underlying sincerity as well, which is perhaps even more frightening. Well, well I look forward to reading it, having waded through, I think, two-sevenths of Remembrance of Things Past and decided I'd waded far enough. Uh, I'm anxious <laughs> yeah, to hear you make the case. A it's, a, it's a modest 200 pages. <laughs> Well, and probably maybe even more happens in those 200 pages than in maybe a few thousand of Proust, I'd guess. Um, but seriously, I think that I, I'll check it out. Um, one of the themes of the book, and you mentioned it earlier, um, uh, that what we do is is a huge part of our identity. And you also talk about the fact that we expect in many ways fulfillment uh, from our work, and many of us find it. Uh, many of us, of course, don't. But that is a very modern concept. It's a relatively new concept. Uh, talk about when and why perhaps that changed and how successful and we are in that quest and what kind of a burden that is. Uh, yes, I mean, um, what we tend to forget is that um, what's particularly new about the modern world of work is not so much technology. I mean, of course, technology is, is extraordinary. But, but really what's new is our attitudes. Uh, you know, scroll back 300 years and see how people are working. And what you find is an almost universal assumption that work is about suffering. Uh, you, you have to do your work because you have to live, um, but you don't particularly enjoy it. Um, the word enjoyment, the idea that work is connected to happiness is a really modern idea. It only really starts to take off in the middle of the 18th century. Uh, interestingly, at about the same time that people start to discover that maybe marriage isn't just a practical activity connected to child raising, but could also be about romantic fulfillment. So it's a great bourgeois experiment that you can work for money, but also for love. And you can get married for practical reasons like child raising and also uh, do it for love. And we are the heirs, if you like, of these two ideas, that you, know, you can be happy in a relationship and you can be happy at work. Love and work. These are the two modern ideals. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I don't think it's necessarily the wrong ideals to have, but they are incredibly ambitious. I mean, the thought that you're going to be married happily ever after is, as anyone who's married knows, a challenging thought. Uh, similarly, the idea of everlasting bliss in the workplace is, again, very challenging. Um, and yet we are sometimes, I mean, sometimes these ideas of fulfillment are very good ones because they power us to greater achievement. We get out of bad relationships. We, we learn to communicate better with our spouses, etc. So we, we make improvements. Similarly, in our jobs, we'll, you know, we'll be ambitious and try and make sure that we're fulfilling our talents, etc. But there is also a moment at which these ambitions flip over and become a kind of torture to us. Uh, and in which really what we need to start to say to people is to say, hey, it's not about being delighted every day or, you know, just lower your ambitions. Maybe it's just a job or whatever it is. Now, those sound like recipes for defeatism, but they're also recipes for survival at, at some level. And as I say, on a, on a bad day, we can let our ambitions, however noble they are, end up um, torturing us in, in ways that are unnecessary and unrealistic. Um, you know, we have to remember that the world has become predominantly secular, not necessarily in the fact that people don't go to church or don't say that they believe anything, but in this area in particular, we basically believe that this life that we have is an arena in which you've got to give it everything you've got. Um, you've got to prove yourself in this life um, uh, because it's the one shot you have, or even if you have another shot at it, it's going to be kind of different. Um, but that's the modern world. That's the modern way of looking at it. And it's led to terrific ambitions, but also to terrific um, neuroses and unhappiness and Despair. feelings of low self-esteem yeah. that we're not measuring up uh, to that goal. And in older, traditional, rural, religious societies, there was always a feeling that at the end of the day, humans are human. Uh, they are not gods. Uh, we don't control the world. Uh, we don't pull all the levers. And just getting by is okay. Um, we take this as a recipe for defeatism. We think we're in center stage. Uh, we've got our rockets. We've got our uh, uh, computers, etc., etc. And, you know, these very noble achievements can sometimes slip us over into an unhelpful egomania um, where human achievements are totally center stage, where we just don't look beyond ourselves. <clears throat> we forget to look at the stars. We forget to look at animals. Uh, we don't look at the eternal. We keep our eyes rigidly fixed on the Internet, uh, on the news cycle, etc., etc. And, uh, you know, we, the air becomes foul, and we just need to kind of open a window and get out a bit more. So that's a long-winded way of answering your question. Well, that's a very, there's a lot of deep truths there, I think. The, that Noticing the parallel between marriage and work as being a source of fulfillment and satisfaction it seems you could argue that they are both, certainly in the modern era, part of our belief that we are entitled or must achieve happiness. And therefore, whatever we do, uh, our home life, our children, our spouse, our work, our leisure, are all supposed to produce happiness, which is an interesting thought. It's a very modern thought, and it's certainly counter to that rural religious uh, roots that we come from. And um, it's a bit of a, a hopeless task. It's not how yeah, we're made. I mean, look, it, we're not made it, that it, way. <laughs> it's a dangerous one because, of course, um, well, economists have got this in this one right down. Um, you know, they will tell us that how rich you feel does not depend on having hit a certain level 
of income that is a priori and unbudgeable. It simply um, has to do with meeting expectations. So you can give someone exactly the same sum of money, but surround them with advertising and surround them with people who are richer than they are, uh, and that person will get, end up pretty miserable. And vice versa, you can put them in a different context and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the same thing happens with happiness. Um, our levels of happiness are not fixed. They're very connected to what we think of as normal. Um, so, you know, if you're on your honeymoon and you have an argument with your spouse, um, you could seriously think that your life is coming to an end and that uh, uh, you know, all your dreams are shattered. Whereas, you know, if you've been set along the road of marriage with a philosophy that essentially tells you, you know, you will have one bad argument every week, um, but that's fine, that's normal, that's just part of being human. We're squabbling creatures, you know, look at kids playing together, look at a couple of cats together, you know, or whatever. Um, so somehow reducing expectations of happiness makes us happier. Um, and it's, you know, it's a paradox, but, but it's one worth expectations, holding in mind. Now, they're, they're very important. In fact, one of the really um, uh, deep truths in the book is your observation about electricity and how much we take technology for granted if we have lived through an era where it was always there. Talk about that, because I found that that was just uh, very, very uh, powerful. Yes, that's right. What I wanted to point out was that uh, we only notice technology, which is new. Anything which has been around a while, we forget. Um, of course, I mean, this happens beyond technology. Uh, this happens with uh, our partners, our uh, uh, the view out of our window, uh, any any acquisition that we make, um, there's a kind of window in, in which we're receptive to it, and then that receptivity tends to die. Uh, and this happens with, with technology. So um, we will be absolutely amazed by you know, a new kind of telephone or whatever, um, but then five years later it will disappear. So in my book I suggest that histories of technology shouldn't just tell us when things were born and invented, but perhaps in a more slightly more sinister way, when things started to become invisible, when we actually started to forget the invention we had made. So, for example, if you, you know, I was fascinated, again, thinking about Marcel Proust. Proust was writing at the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, one of the charming, many charming things about his writing is that he's very interested in technology, particularly the telephone and electricity. Now, telephone and electricity had just come on the market in the early 20th century, sort of popular market, and Proust was fascinated by this. So he writes endlessly about the telephone and how amazing it is that you would be sitting in one place and talking to somebody in another. He'll spend 20 pages describing the wonder of the telephone. Bless him. Um, and, of course, we would never think of doing that. There are, there are about 15 pages, uh, quite far on in the book, when he describes what a car engine sounds like when you change gears. And the whole he has a kind of philosophy of gears he connects us up to, to life. He thinks that all of us have gears and that the whole idea of gearing especially. You know, and here's a guy who you know, doesn't particularly, never drove a car, never knew how to drive a car, etc. But he's, he's essentially kind of connecting up the invention of the car gears to all sorts of lovely things. Now, we, don't, we do that with you know, the Apple iPhone because it's just come on the market. You know, we think, oh, that, that's cool. We can spend a lot of time thinking about that. Once, so the iPhone is alive. In 10 years' time, it will have become invisible. So, as I say, you know, keep in mind that distinction. When things are invented and when they become invisible, the iPhone will soon become invisible. I think it's a uh, it's a, it's an incredibly important point. I, my uh, my friend John Popola mentions mentioned this to me once that 
you know, you, you have this incredible technology in the palm of your hand. It lets you call whoever you want, whenever you want. It lets you surf the internet. And if you lose service for 40 seconds, you can get extremely upset. That's right. <laughs> it's just absurd. <laughs> you go back 20 years ago and say to someone, okay, I'm going to give you this little thing you can hold in your hand. It's going to let you talk to people. It's going to let you find out things about the world around you, call restaurants that you find on the cell phone. But by the way, you know, every once in a while, it's going to lose service. Well, how often? Uh, about once a week for maybe 40 seconds. That's a, are you crazy. That's lovely. But it would, it, it, you can get annoyed. And it's bizarre, but that's, that's the uh, – that, and the same thing, I mean, with, with cars, you know, if you talk to, to, our, to our parents, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, to my parents, I'm 55. My parents, uh, their cars broke all the time. That, that, you know, that was standard. Now if a car breaks down, you're just – you're shocked and horrified. You yeah. expect it to be perfect. Yeah. Of course, that, I, you know, again, it comes back to what we're allowed to be interested in. Um, you know, for example, many people are really, really interested in their cars. Now, there, there's a small, narrow band of people who wear their obsession with cars you know, on their sleeves, and they will declare themselves, you know, auto-enthusiasts and get the magazines and go on things. With them. But many more of us will sometimes do things like, you know, we're not necessarily thrilled by how fast the car goes, but let's say on a drive on the highway late at night, we'll be looking at the instrument panel lit up, and we'll be looking at the kind of neat way in which all the little bits and bobs on the uh, instrument display are put together, and we'll think, hey, this is really beautiful. This is, is really yeah. kind of stunning sort of thing. Now, this is not something to bring up at a dinner party. No. I mean, that would, you know, <laughs> at a dinner party, you talk about, you know, what's on at the museum. You don't talk about how amazing you, you thought it was looking at the instruments. Um, and again, this is just a prejudice, a bias in our culture. Um, and it's the work of what artists should be doing is, is just uh, making sure that we are able to discuss what actually, what life is really like, what actually makes us sad, what actually makes us happy, what's actually beautiful, what's actually ugly. And that may depart from the view of Newsweek or CNN. You know, it may not be the standard view, but, but that's what art should be about. Well, car makers certainly understand it because they spend a lot of time trying to stun us with that with that view. Actually, I think, and and, and when a car has a dashboard that's dated, uh, it's a real turnoff. I, I think to to folks. I think the car makers know that. But your example of cars, I want I want to come back to that point about art because it it seems to me that the extraordinary explosion of photography as a popular pursuit. And the sharing of photographs, which is in the you know billions and billions now through Flickr and and um, Facebook, uh, has the opportunity. And I think it's making some dent into the aesthetics that you're talking about. So, for example, people who take photographs of cars and machinery are illuminating that beauty in a way that wasn't uh, there before. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I think we're we're finding. I mean, look, one of my favorite websites in the world, though I almost never go to it, <laughs> um, a website called airlinemeals.com. And what it is is essentially a series of photographs taken by ordinary passengers of their meals with a tray in front of them from all around the world at any time. Um, and to look at that is fascinating because you see people's legs and you see their hands because they leave them you know, in the shot. And you see little bits of their clothing, and you think, who is this person? Where were they going? And you look at the airline tray, and it's got all the little bits and bobs, and you know, it's all fascinating in itself, etc. And this is a major... I mean, they have hundreds of thousands of, of photographs 
on their on their thing. But uh, I think it's the kind of thing you're talking about. People are starting to take photographs of more than just you know their mum and dad. Um, they're more than just and more than just the mountain in the distance. Although there's plenty of those, and they're absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I'm, um, I'm glad that AirlineMeals.com is going to get a spike in uh, traffic. Although I wonder if, <laughs> if our average listener will find it as fascinating as you. It's, it'll be interesting to see. I, I want to come back to the question of fulfillment. You, know, you started off a few minutes ago talking about how we have this burden that we're, we're supposed to be fulfilled in our work that worked for the first time over the last few centuries has become a source of – expected to be a source of satisfaction and fulfillment rather than something you suffer through to put food on the table. But it does seem to me that either through delusion or fact – uh, that's come to be true more than any time in human history. Uh, th- th- there were people in 1600 who got satisfaction from their work and who didn't find their work uh, totally exhausting and who didn't find their work dangerous. But that was an exception. Most people's work was brutally long, dangerous, and no fun. Uh, that proportion has definitely gone down over the last 300 years, and um, it seems to me it's a good trend. Yes, I mean, also, and I, I mentioned this somewhere in the book, there are many, many jobs now that cannot be done properly unless people are happy. Um, you know, many of the jobs in the past, it didn't matter how happy or unhappy the person was. The most obvious example is, of course, slavery. Um, it doesn't matter if, if the person is happy. Now, because many, many jobs in the modern economy are essentially service jobs, they're, they're, they're about human relationships, um, those things cannot be done unless the actor involved is, you know, is broadly content and in sympathy with what's going on. You know, you can't do it um, with, uh, you know, at the barrel of a gun. Um, and as much as the altruism of uh, employee, employers, um, it's really that that's driven the improvements in um, labor conditions, uh, especially, you know, in the last, say, 50 years. Um, That's a very deep point. Most most offices know that there's no point hiring somebody if that person is going to be left in uh, a kind of insalubrious place. They're going to get start getting depressed. They're going to have fights with management, etc. It's just not worth the hassle. A human being is a complicated machine. If you're going to acquire a complicated machine like this, look after it. That's been the motto, really, of the modern economy. You cannot abuse your tools. It used to be the case, people, people respected that logic in relation to, I don't know, a farm animal. You, know, you wouldn't hit your horse. You, know, you would look after your horse. But the feeling was, well, you could actually hit the person. You know. um, and now we, we're much more respectful, partly because we're nice uh, and partly because we're self-interested. Um, of course, self-interest is probably a better basis for continuing that. So, um, so, yeah, so I don't think goodness. we're much nicer than we were 300 years ago, but we act that <laughs> well, way. It's sporadic, isn't it? Yeah, it's but that's, no, it's depending a fa- on if we've had a good sleep. <laughs> no, it's it's a fantastic point. I mean, I, you know, I've used this example before, I think, on the program. But uh, supposedly, Southwest Airlines, when they would hire people, they'd put forty new applicants in a room, and they'd tell them, uh, "What we're going to do here is is a, everyone's going to make a brief five minute presentation about themselves, and uh, so I'll give you a few minutes to start preparing." And so people would start frantically, of course, taking notes about what they were going to say. And then every few minutes, someone would get up and make their presentation. And supposedly what Southwest did is they didn't pay so much attention to the presentation. What they paid attention to 
were the other people in the room. So the people in the room who sat and continued to work on their presentation while the others were presenting, they marked them down. What they looked for were people who looked empathetic toward the presenter, who were sort of rooting for them and encouraging them because that was their way, very inexpensive way of discovering who was a pleasant person to work with. Uh, And it seems extremely important. You know, the the strangest job uh, in terms of specialization, one of the strangest jobs that that has never existed before and is ubiquitous now is is the greeter, the person Mm -hmm. who stands at the front of the store and says, hey, (laughs) it's a bizarre job. I was talking to someone. uh, My wife went into the bowels of a footlocker a shoe store, and I was waiting at the front with a bunch of packages. I didn't follow her. She had a quick errand to run, and I was chatting with the greeter uh, who was doing I, – I, I was helping her out. I was greeting as well. You know, If anybody else needed something, I was trying to show them the way if she was busy greeting another customer. But you know, it's a, it's a job that – the main skill is being a, a relatively happy person. It's hard to fake it you know, for an hour or all day. Uh, it yeah. turned out in the footlocker – she only. I asked her. I said, "Do you do this all day?" Oh no, we can only handle it for an hour. You know, and then they put her back. You know, she, they rotate among different tasks. But I have a feeling in some stores they just there are some people who just do it all day. They're just happy to greet people. I guess I don't know. And I think you know what's interesting is um, you hear a lot from the older generation in the UK. It may not be so much in the US, but in the UK you hear sometimes older people complaining about the way the younger people, the younger generation, is bringing up their kids. Sure. And they say things along the lines of. You know, they spend the whole time nannying them and worrying about their self-esteem and their, uh, how they feel and their inner lives. And, you know, in my day, it was a little bit tougher. And, you know, if the kid was annoying, you'd hit it. And, you know, it was all fine and everything was the best for it. Anyway, you hear that kind of line yep, quite a lot time. from an older generation. Um, in a way, and, and, and so the message is essentially the younger generation is too soft. You know, the, the parenting skill it, it, is all too soft. It's not real. Um, to some extent, I think, if one wants to be generous towards modern parenting, it's actually just as attuned to the needs of modern society as was the previous kind of stoic, you know, get out there and be tough philosophy. Um, because really what it's doing is it's, it's responding to the needs of the modern economy. And as you say, the modern economy needs a lot of greeters. It needs a lot of people with high self-esteem. It needs people who are confident. It needs people who are cheerful. Um, uh, and, and a lot of the techniques of modern parenting and modern schooling are really about that. It's about trying to create people who are going to work in the modern economy in that way. So before sort of saying, oh, modern teachers, you know, they've got it all wrong and what's all this business about making each kid feel special, you know, just get them into line. We don't live in a militaristic society yeah. on the whole. Um, we need to have people who are cheerful individualists because that's what's going to work down at you know, footlocker. It's a fantastic observation. Uh, <clears throat> we're almost out of time. I, I want to ask you about a phrase you don't use in the book, but it hovers over it in various places, which is the knowledge economy. So there's this view, and I think it's mostly true, that our work life is very different for many of us, at least, than it was 50 years ago. Many of us are doing things with technology or information or knowledge or creativity, job titles that uh, podcaster being one of them, that weren't available 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. People working designing iTunes, people working on uh, the new, uh, the latest gadget, people working in the back uh, part of a, of a corporation doing um, 
database design, uh, some of the bureaucracy that you're talking about that's become automated. Um, and there's a general view that those jobs are, quote, good jobs. Then there are the folks who either, for a variety of reasons, don't have access to those jobs. They don't have the education. They didn't make the investments. And they're still doing the non-knowledge economy jobs. They're, they're not designing the software that lets you track the package at FedEx. They're driving the truck. And the claim is that you know those jobs aren't as numerous as they were before, which I view as basically a good thing, by the way. But they argue that you know they don't have the opportunities for fulfillment and creativity. And my view is, and I, I want to hear yours. My view is is that we sometimes over romanticize the knowledge jobs, and we under romanticize the the so called blue collar jobs that are that are only uh, that are supposedly uh, getting you know getting less numerous, and that those are dreary jobs, dead end jobs. I don't know if the people who are in those jobs actually feel that way. But that's the way that elites and intellectuals tend to look at them. What do you think? Um, I think we're really divided on the on the value of you know blue collar work. And um, on one hand, there's a tremendous romanticization of the craftsman um, and uh, you know the, the good honest worker. And of course, you know Jesus as a carpenter has a privileged role to play, the, the uh, craftsman. Um, but uh, you know, we we move between thinking that that's that's real life, or else um, you know, sitting in a in, in a den writing computer code is uh, is real life. Now, of course, you know, at the end of the day, you have to step back and think: um, the human animal has com- a complex and vast range of needs that go from needing shoes to needing entertainment to needing sweets to needing you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And all work, all work. Um, it's the same at the end of the day. It is about fulfilling human needs. Um, and it becomes satisfying when we feel that we're able to bring something of ourselves, something quite personal, something quite tied to the best of ourselves, to the task of fulfilling somebody else's needs. And that can be in so many different areas. Um, and that unites all workers. Uh, it really is a case of workers of the world unite, not through a labor organization, but through a commitment to fulfilling other human beings' needs. My guest today has been Alain de Botton. Alain, thank you so much for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.